Welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman, and on today we have um, an amazing guest who has been on the show a few times before, Kathleen Nagley, who is the current head of school at the International School of Helsinki. She is also a mentor, a keynoter, and so much more. Um, You can learn all about her leadership philosophy and ways to connect with her at KathleenNagley.com. I will be sure to include that link as well as her Twitter handle in the show notes. She's going to share with us what it takes to be a more courageous leader and how we can look at LGBTQ plus inclusion through the lens of student agency. Enjoy. I think, is it the third or the fourth? The third episode that you've done. Um, And, you know, again, both of your episodes are ones that I I hear back from from listeners all the time saying, wow, I've just shared that with two or three other people. That was really powerful. So I'm I'm just, I'm so glad to have you back on again and hopefully um, not for the last time this time either. I hope I can impress. Uh, I, I think you always will. And, and I'm, you know, in the questions, I'm going to point to a few different resources so folks can just continue to, to learn from you, Kathleen. Um, you, you had a presentation at CISA 2021 this year. Uh, your, your session was entitled Choosing the Path of Most Resistance. I love that. Uh, and so I, I'll link to that. And what I really love is that you foreground a lot of the thinking in terms of asking the audience to really think back on memories and to reflect Um and I'm wondering, you know, of course, our show is all about talking about hopefully building towards more inclusive classrooms for our LGBTQ plus students, really for all students. So as a school leader, are there any memories that are really important to you that have also, you know, been at the foundation of um, what you think it takes for a school to become more LGBTQ plus inclusive? It makes me think of actually two bookend memories. So if you let, let me talk through two, maybe it helps me inform about where I'm at now. So l- let me tell you about when I was in high school. So I graduated in 1986 and um, it was in the middle of the AIDS crisis in, in the US at that time. And um, I lived in a, uh, a suburban area of Philadelphia and that area was primarily those um, those who were part of the white flight of uh, Philadelphia that had happened. So uh, white workers, poor workers moved to cheap suburbs in Philadelphia and schools and kind of rose out of these farm towns. And in, in the school I was at, um, it was not diverse. In, in any way, um, but when it came to LGBTQ issues, completely silent. Um, even though we were in the middle of the AIDS crisis, there was no one talking about um, uh, issues around this, except that gay men were dying. There was there was a lot of um, you know stereotypes that you know, it was a gay plague and that you would catch this from somebody. And for so many of, you know, um, the gay youth at that time period, it was a terrifying error. And the reason I tell you about this is because one of the few black students in my school, this guy, Daryl Brown, um, we must have, I, I honestly think in my senior class, I think we had three black students at about 250. We had one, one kid who was Mexican um, and three black kids. And, um, and with every reason in the world, the, the black students often sat together in the lunchroom and I'm sure it felt like their only like safe place. Um, and I set a table with kind of maybe the you know, there was a, a TV show at some point called The Freaks and Geeks. Maybe that was my table that I, I, I was sitting at. And I, it was a really interesting group of, of um, individuals in my school. Um, but at one point, Daryl, who was a, a black student, began sitting with us our senior year. And, you know, we didn't care. Like, I was happy to have Daryl sit at our table. And, you know, we were, we were, we were friendly and, you know, we had conversations with him and 
I didn't think much of it. <clears throat> and I found out years later, he went to the same university I went to. And he ran into one of our friends who sat at that table. And he said, you know, I just want to thank, thank you guys for um, saving my life during that time because I had come out as gay to my friends and I was completely rejected by them. And I went to your table because this was my only hope that I would have a place to sit at in the cafeteria. And I was suicidal at the time. And um, just wanna just let you know that that, that was really meaningful um, that you had accepted me at this table. You know, when that word got back to us, like I thought, you know, I felt thankfully, you know, we were accepting. And I also felt such regret that I didn't know his story at all. And that it was a time that he would, didn't have the courage to tell us that story. And I'm sure I didn't have the skills at the time to understand the intersectionality of his story and how, how difficult his life was. And unfortunately, a few years later, Daryl died of AIDS. Um, and he was the first person of our senior class um, who had passed away. And I don't think most people knew that that had been the reason. Um, so when I think about supporting LGBTQ kids, I can't help but think of this story first of what, what Daryl went through and how there was not a single resource in that school to help him, protect him, take care of him um, during a very, very hostile time and world, not only for being a young black man in a very, very white, not, you know, I'm sure a lot of the white kids said, we weren't racist. I'm like, sure, I'm sure you weren't. Um, but, you know, we had no skills in that. There was nothing in our curriculum that supported learning about that some people are gay, like mm -hmm. nothing, never ever to be mentioned in my health curriculum. It was not, not in existence. And many of, many of the students that were gay, I met up with many years later and some of them, those who came out to me and, you know, we've talked about some of this stuff years later about what was missing. And, you know, I, I keep that in mind. So now let me tell you like the modern version of this. And this is what still worries me. Now it's 27 years, now it's 30 years later, I'm talking now. This will be my 35th, 35th um, high school reunion. So now we're talking 30 years later and when I was getting hired for my um, current position in Helsinki, we had, they had a student panel um, also interview me, which, which I really appreciated. And the kids were allowed to ask any question that they wanted to ask. And one young man said to me, you know, at our school, we, we have issues of LGBTQ bullying and LGBTQ students not feeling safe. What would you do about that? How would you see that? And I was able to say at the time that, you know, what I believed in was a school where they would be safe and that I would do everything I could to try to make that change happen for them. And that same kid ended up in what was later known as my Koti group. And um, um, he lived in my office in the, couple, in the year after that question. And he was always hanging out with me. And he's a dear friend of mine now, who's actually, he's an alumni a couple of years later now. And he sometimes works at the school doing odd jobs while he's in university. I can tell a story with him where, you know, he, he used to tell me of the things that were happening and, you know, I used him as a point of reference to understand what I needed to do and what I needed to change in the school. And in that first year I was there, the first thing I did was try to form a support group as fast as I could because we had many of our students 
um, who were in this community who did have did have mental health issues because they had parents who did not support them. They came from international families where sometimes it's against the law to be gay and families that reject them, would not acknowledge them, whatever. So like we, we formed that su support group pretty quick um, in my um, leadership. And you know we've done many things since then, but a great moment I had with him at one point was, um, one day he came to my office with a bag and he's like, can, can I show you something? I'm like, yeah, you know, what do you want to show me? And he hesitantly pulled out the most beautiful red pumps that were size, I don't know what, because he's double my height, size 50 something. I don't know what the numbers are at that level. And he wanted to show me his beautiful red shoes and um, and I wanted to celebrate with him, you know, how wonderful, what, what a beautiful pair of shoes that these were. And he was gonna wear them. I didn't realize at the time that he was dabbling in drag. And we had this dress up thing that happens in Finland each year called Penkarit. And he was going to come in his, his drag persona and wear those shoes. And I thought, you're crazy because you're on your feet for eight hours, that's gonna hurt. Um, but I have this wonderful blurry picture of me and him um, together, um, you know, him in his, in his, his, you know, his queen outfit. And um, he left that school and he left knowing that it was a school that had somebody that completely believed in him, trusted him recognized his authentic self, championed him, was a cheerleader for him and welcomed him back to our community while he was in university. And like the sad part is that it was 30 years later and there probably still weren't the protections and things that you know he needed earlier on in his career in our school and in other schools. And the sad truth is that most schools are not so different than what Daryl Brown experienced at my high school 35 years ago. So this is my wondering now, um, how, do I, how do I help others see why it's important to have a school where everyone can be their true selves and how incredibly important that is for all of our students um, and our LGBTQ population is the most fragile, maybe, uh, especially if there's other intersectionalities of race or class or, or other things on top of that. Most likely in the highest, some of the highest rates of suicide, some of the highest rates of alcohol and drug abuse, some of the highest rates of pregnancy. Um, so why aren't we stepping up for are some of our most fragile members of our of our schools still. And, you know, again, for those of you listening who hear Kathleen mention those statistics, I'll be sure to provide some links in the show notes because I don't know about you, but the thing that I often am told is, oh, but it's, you know, 2021, aren't things so much better now? Um, and, you know, in a very odd way, I'm sort of I'm relieved to hear a school leader like yourself saying, I am concerned, I am worried, because in a lot of the consultancy work that I do, I often will hear a school leader say, there's no issues here, I'm not concerned. You know, and then through working with staff and working with students, I often find out that is in no way accurate. Like you do need to be worried, you do need to be concerned. And Kathleen, I know that you're a part of many of the online groups that I am where we're having these conversations. So I know that you also see quite frequently someone saying, I want to start a student support group, but my school, my school leader won't support me in this. You know, there's pushback and they say, we don't need it. Um, and, you know, you do bring that experience as a head of school, as somebody that's been part of school leadership for so long. So to anyone who is a school leader who might be listening and thinking, yeah, my school doesn't need that. Um, you know, is there, is there a question that you might tell them to ask themselves, or is there a suggestion that you might have for them in dealing with that hesitation or that resistance um, when a student member or staff comes to them asking for it? 
the student voice has to be there. Like, find out anonymously through equality surveys, equity surveys, whatever you're thinking about, put those together because the truth comes out in very harsh terms. Even in my school where I'm really trying, I know that kids experience things in chat rooms. They're incredibly homophobic. Um, you, you know, gender norms are, are, are punished by youth on each other. Um, and uh, it's very clear when you start talking to students what they're experiencing. And it's, it's my duty of care. If safety is my number one duty of care, then this is an issue of, of students' lives who are, are deeply unsafe. And if you just think of basic psychological needs, we all need two essential things. We need, as even from the smallest baby, we need to have secure attachment of deep care. We, we need to have our authentic selves recognized and um, deemed as wonderful and acceptable and um, championed. And most of us grow up in homes where some piece of that is not quite right. School is the next place where a child has a chance to have a secure relationship. And how many of us have stories about the teacher that was there for them that changed their life? Someone said something, someone was there, someone did something, that secure attachment. With also, someone saw me for who I was and someone mm -hmm. cared for me and loved me. The, the LGBTQ kids often have the double hit that they're being rejected by their family and friends. Um, so like the secure attachment, the most fundamental secure attachment with their parents is often in jeopardy when they come out or they're, they're even unconsciously coming out in a way that their parents are recognize, recognizing. And then on the second part of that, then they live in a society most places on the planet where they cannot be their authentic selves and have to continuously hide. So we are dealing with a population that is on the most fundamental levels of human need, need our support. And from the very start, from you know, preschool on up, we, if we are doing our job as a school, we are, we are providing trying to provide secure, stable attachments to young people where we connect with them. And we're trying, we should damn well be trying to celebrate a child's authentic self. You know, I, obviously I agree with everything you said. And, you know, I think it's, it's reckoning with the reality that school is where we go in order to learn how we treat one another in society. Um, you know, and I, I think sexuality being fluid, if I am a student who, you know, I, I might not even know how I identify yet, I'm still receiving all of those messages around how I might be treated should yes. I. Um, and and I, I, I just, I, I think that's, that's so important. And what I really appreciate about your leadership is that it's not necessarily just school relationship with children, but it's also making sure that you're fostering that culture where it is child to child relationship and, you know, them being able to support one another. Because in my mind, a school leader is really and truly only as great as is their belief in student leadership. You either see that potential and you harness it um, or you don't. And this year, I know that your school has launched a student advisory group called STAND. Um, again, I'll, I'll link to that so, so folks can, can learn from them and can support them. So for anyone who's listening and, you know, they're thinking, I love that idea. I want my students to really be able to serve as partner allies, to have that sense of agency. What advice do you have for fostering a culture where a group like Stand comes to be? Well, to me, one thing that I recognize is that if a group is forming like that, you, it's often formed by not the allies, but the marginalized. The marginalized find each other and say, can, can we change things around us? And 
they often see this as a way that if, if we feel protected with each other, that we recognize you know, each other, um, then we might be able to find others who are also hurting. And the groups first started because of Black Lives Matter. They came back and said, we need to do something. Can, can we do something? And we're I'm like, yes, what do you want to do? And we had made that conscious decision. School had let out for us when the George Floyd murder had happened. Um, so we didn't have a chance to kind of respond as a school. We were already out on summer vacation, but we knew they were going to come back and we didn't want to pay lip service to this. So we wanted the students to help lead this because we knew that they would be passionate about um, this issue. So when they first came back, this is what happened. But to me, it was very understandable that those who were gravitating towards this issue of um, anti-discrimination also was quietly trying to find ways to find a, a refuge for other issues, for the LGBTQ kids, um, for, for students who come from multiple nationalities and never feel like they fit in, from, um, from, from girls who are growing up in a very traditional family. And, but when they come to our school, it's like this whole shift of, you know, feminism and having a voice and all of these, you know, complex, complex issues around marginalization. So they first started getting together and I have a, a wonderful um, teacher at our school named Rachel Thrash who was working with them. And she, she is in really great in embedding these conversations into her curriculum. And so a lot of the kids that were part of this group were also were part of her classroom. And so we were looking for ways to kind of, you know, support this. And she was doing this, they do this um, branding unit in, um, in one of the, I think it's ninth grade. And they, um, what they end up doing is learning marketing skills. And then they have real world connections that they find a nonprofit that needs some help. And then they like help rebrand their website mm -hmm. or other things and like provide free services for, for nonprofits. And we have relationships with like refugee services and things like this at the school, which is just a really great idea. But they thought, okay, we wanna do a brand pitch. They, they decided they wanted to use the school logo. And they said, you know, um, would you invite um, Kathleen into one of these meetings and, you know, and do a brand pitching? So they did all these really funky things with our logo where like, like bright Black Lives Matters fist and you know a rainbow flag and anything they could think of they can like put in this, this logo. And I was just like, yes. Like I was so like excited by what they were saying because I wanna support these kids. I wanna find a way that they feel truly supported by us. So after that, I, I, I spoke to Rachel. I said, you know what I'm gonna do? We have like this outside agency um, called uh, KIOP, K-I-O-P dot agency, a wonderful lady I've worked with for over a decade. And I said, we're gonna bring her in and help us help them. Um, I'm gonna give money to their branding efforts. So like, I'm gonna take school resources and really commit to their leadership on this, that they would work with the marketing uh, team on this. And she is an incredible marketer who's won numerous awards for the work that she's done in the past. Like, so I'm gonna find top talent to work with, you know, these kids. And, and, I, and I said to them, I, so I went back to them and I said, you know, I really love what you did, but how about we really do this right? And so that, that when we have the right branding, we can put on t-shirts, we can do posters, we can do something really cool. And they're like, yeah. So like they began working, working with the marketing team and um, she listened to them and they were heard. They had real voice and real power in decision-making. And all this is like, this is what student agency is about, right? Um, and when I talk to people about the STAM project, there's two pieces here. Like there's like, first of all, that I respect kids enough to do this well. And I'm not going to like, somehow like, that's nice, honey. You know, you do mm -hmm. this, but we're mm -hmm. gonna make the real decisions. 
So like allowing them to like really go for it, really give them, you know, an adult kind of conversation that isn't that going to help them in their future? Like they can put that on a, you know, a CV one day. Yeah. I worked with a marketing team to rebrand, you know, something. And, and then as we were building this with her, because she's so talented as well, like we should really be thinking of this as a, as a global effort. Like let's make a logo that get rid of ISH, IS Helsinki. We don't need that. I mean, some things they included in, but we said, let's just, let's do it. Let's go all the way with this. And, you know, the kids worked through that. And then we thought, you know, she talked them through, how do you launch this? So we had like, you know, all these ideas on how do you launch a brand? How do you launch, um, you know, the kind of work you want to do? Who do you really want to be? What, what is your mission? And much of their mission really came to that. They wanted to find a way to give safe places for kids to talk through what they might be experiencing. That was like their really, their main thing that, you know, LGBT kid could come to them and say, I'm struggling at the moment. I, you know, I don't feel so good in this class. This teacher says this, or I have some kids in my class who are saying this, you know, in this online game I'm in and I don't, I don't know how to handle this. So they, they were really focused on finding a way that they could provide services for others. And, and then we were talking about, well, you know, maybe we should think about that we have some kind of conference or training. And then they were able to pull together an online conference for the whole upper school. They picked the topics, they found speakers. We helped connect them with, with some other people when they were struggling, but basically they did it all on their own. They reached out to various groups. There's, a, there's an LGBTQ uh, group here in Finland that's nationally funded. They reached out to them. They got a really great speaker to come in on particular issues. We had women in leadership issues. We had just kind of like anti-racist work. Uh, Darnell Fine helped the kids do some things. Um, and, you know, you can do anything online, right? It's super easy to run a conference. Just have 10 Zoom rooms. <laughs> and, you know, that's what we did. And we had kids, you know, from other schools attended. We had teachers help run the Zoom rooms. So we're helping empower them. We were like in the back, you know, being our, our tech sales. <laughs> which was kind of funny sometimes. Like, can you handle running this Zoom for this kid who's running this workshop and like, you know, during interview questions? And they went through that whole process, learned a lot. Like that was like, you know, a start where we can think of how we're gonna do that bigger and better in the future. Other schools have reached out to us, you know, putting them in contact and they now don't need us. So we co-created with them and they said, you know, we're ready now to, you know, is it okay for us to change the structure? We have new ideas with the structure of this leadership. And we're ready to go. We're like, yes, you know, we're just here, whatever you need, we're ready to support. Um, and we're already thinking about some of the things we're gonna do this fall. But like the story of this for school leaders, there, there's so many pieces of that. Do the kids trust you? Like the students came to me with a pitch using our logo you know, with what some people would see symbols of that would disturb others. <laughs> and they knew that that would not disturb me. So like I had somehow communicated through the way I talked to kids or speeches or whatever, that I would be a safe person. So first leadership question, do the kids see you as somebody they could turn to and support? I believe in student agency. So how can I give power. And this is agency, student agency in schools requires you as a school leader to give up power. That's super scary for a lot of people. And, and it's, you know, we often have this like, we're gonna connect to the real world. We're gonna pretend, pretend you're gonna write a letter to the UN kind of situation. My belief of student agency and real world connection is Let's do the real thing. Why aren't we teaching them and practicing the real thing? There were climate strikes before COVID here in, in Finland. Students were, were climate uh, striking um, in support of uh, what was happening in, in some other cities. And you know, other schools would have been like super control, like don't go on that climate, you're gonna be missing class. We said, no, I want you guys to go to the student climate strike. 
And we're like, let's help you make posters <laughs> and we'll send some people out there too. And, you know, we'll support you with us. And they're like, we're, mm-hmm. we're going to do this and this too. And like some of our kids were interviewed and, you know, it's all sorts of like, are you going to do it? Do you believe, do you believe, you know, I have kids who are fired up for climate change. Should I support that? Yes. I have kids who say, we're worried about kids in our school who are not protected. Will you help support us? Yes. Right. And let's do it right. Let's build their leadership for that. And now those kids who are part of Stand are also like in conferences where where they're, you know, they have adults asking them, how did you do it? How did it happen? And they're able to have deep reflections on this and they're able to talk through and they're so incredibly eloquent. And I can't tell you how proud I am of uh, the work they're doing and so incredible for the leadership of Rachel Thrash and my, um, and my team, that those pieces could lead to, me, to my door where I could say, here's some money and let's do this. And, and one of the other things I did with them is they also, we wanted to have training with them. And Darnell Fine, who is an incredible diversity trainer out there, has worked with our school. And those, some of those same kids helped be on the hiring committee for him. So they went through diversity um, hire uh, CVs with us. They were part of the interview process. Um, and then they've also worked with him you know, as a group. And we've also done things together. And again, when we done, they've done a training together around there with them, the kids, the kids can hear me and see me speak in support of things like LGBTQ. And then they're like, then they know they're safe, right? And, and that's what we're there for. So, you know, also for, for anybody who's listening, uh, Darnell Fine, I am very, very fortunate to have crossed paths with him. Uh, he is remarkable and anybody that's done any work with him would tell you the same. So I'll be sure to just include his Twitter handle. I, I know that he, his schedule this past year, um, he's done so much. And if you are a school who's looking for a consultant, um, you know, Darnell, just I have only ever heard and I'm sure only ever will hear just... Um, what a transformative experience it is to learn with him. So I'll be sure to include his Twitter handle. Um, but you know, Kathleen, what you're talking about really is this question of: Is school giving students an education in compliance, or is it giving students an education in collaboration and creativity? And you know, my, my question around: How do we get school leaders to just recognize? You know, are you supporting student leadership? Are you you know creating a, a culture where you're going to have students seeing their own agency. And I I think there's a spectrum there, right? Of like, I'm not getting in their way, you know, and on the other end of that, it's like, you know, I'm really just helping it flourish and creating networks um, like in your anecdote. But the thing that I find sometimes is unless you're really self-aware or unless you've really experienced it, sometimes you might think like, sure, I'm supporting that when you're not. So, you know, maybe this is harsh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say, you know, if your school is not seeing students come to you with ideas like this, there's roadblocks, right? There's some unspoken rules in place where students feel like you would tell them no, and they know that implicitly without even having to ask. So for anybody who's listening and is saying like, hmm, like we're not having students approach us with ideas like this, what is one thing that you would suggest they might do differently so that students know, hey, the unspoken rule is we are here for you. We do want to hear your ideas um, because we know that you have some great ones. Oh, I think you mentioned compliance in schools. And this is the, this is the de facto mode in most schools with very long lists of discipline rules and what's required of students and even in schools that are pretty modern, there's, there's a hidden set of rules of hierarchies. And I think if you want to have agency at your school, it's the first thing you must break down. So if you're a new school leader and you're, you're thinking like, where do I start with this? I think the first place you start is like, how do I lessen the hierarchy between me and the students? Um, Darnell talks about um, that there is adult supremacy in schools. Mm. I think that's a really great term. Um, and 
if you, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, and people often say, well, you can't be the kid's friend. It's like, that's not what I'm saying. It's like to be an advocate for students is to recognize their, their developmental age and where they're at. Um, um, but also creating structures in a school where you're around, they see you um, and you're talking to kids like real people. Mm -hmm. I know this sounds strange, but how often, I had some really interesting interviews with people recently. We had students be part of the interview process as well for some other hires. And we were watching about how they talk to kids. And we had really wonderful young women in this one interview. And she talked down to them like they were in third grade. Oh, well, like, you know, they had a really good question. Like, well, you know, if this was the case, I would have to do this. But it was like, you know, I am the adult here and you are this lowly, lowly child. <laughs> and when I see that, like, that, if that's happening in the classroom as well, then there's this dynamic of where great things are not going to happen. So there's no doubt when I'm in a classroom that people know that I, I'm leading that classroom in my history of teaching, like they would not ever disrespect me because they cared for me so deeply because I respected them so well. I always say that when a student comes into my office, I always treat them as an honored guest. I have this beautiful sofa and now it's COVID times, it's changing, but you know, I'd be like, if they had to come to my room, like, oh, you know, please have a seat. And can I offer you a cup of tea? Or, you know, here's some nuts. I always have like random snacks and things in the room as well. And they all come away from that. Like, what just happened that she treated me this way? Um, and I've learned that from people modeling that in my life. I remember once a, we were helping this elderly man in, in, a, in a home. He needed a change with his TV and um, a friend of mine, we went there to try to fix his TV and didn't work. So we got him another TV, like another cheap TV or something. But he was so thankful that he, and I was like 18 at the time, maybe he brought us back. He said, yeah, I want to have you over for, you know, for proper tea. <laughs> and so we came like a week later and he laid out his finest china and you know his most beautiful tablecloths and treated us like I was an 80 year old you know woman coming over for tea and I always remember this like how that felt to be like wow that this person saw me so special that they laid out their china for me and mm. that's kind of how I see when a kid comes into my office um I want them to feel like I'm so, I'm so, so it's a gift that they came um, to be with me at that moment and how lucky I am. And so when you break down these hierarchies in this way, and some people would say, oh, well, that's like ridiculous. You're being subservient or something like, it's never been the case. I taught in very dangerous schools at times. And I never ever doubted that my students would always take care of me because they knew I took care of them. Um, and that's a question for every teacher who's listening. Do the kids see you as that person to turn to? And if you are that person, then you should be building your leadership capacity in, in a school as well. Because the, the kids that, if you're the teacher that they turn to, then you need to be in, in the places of power because then you're gonna take that same ethos and spread it around and when I try to convince people to enter into leadership this is my this is my my tactic if you want to change the lives of, for example the LGBTQ youth in your school you got to move up and, and, and access power you've got to take power you've got to go up through the chain and I know that's scary for so many people but if this is this is what you care for you got to find the places of power and, and upturn them so you can be in place and the kids can turn to you. 
And, you know, in, in seeking that power or disrupting that power, um, you know, I know even for you, someone who is in a position of power as a head of school, when we are doing that, inevitably, there's going to be pushback. You know, I, I just, I feel like it took me a long time to just learn to know it's coming. You know, I feel like I used to just be very optimist, optimistic and think like, well, maybe the reaction will be different this time. But I just think pushback is just, it is part of the response and just anticipate it. And I know that you also approach the term of innovation as very holistic. You know, your school is looking to innovate not just in one area. And sometimes I think schools say like, well, this year we're going to handle this. Therefore, we don't necessarily have the room to look at these other issues. Um, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that is not the approach that you take. You look at innovation in terms of really everything, uh, or maybe seeing the interconnectedness between it. And I'm just wondering, you know, if I know that your mission is saying, you know, pursue power because you're going to need it to make real change. What have you learned as a leader in terms of, um, you know, handling that pushback because it can be relentless, you know, and, and this is in all areas, you know, when you're trying to innovate, even with ed tech, there's pushback there too. So how do you handle that? Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I, I do try to, I do have kind of a mode of innovation in, in everything. I, I'm just one of these people who like, I'm always seeing that whatever we're doing, you know, we can always do it a little bit better, right? As a teacher, like I would, you know, have a lesson, you know, that went well one year and I thought, oh, I'm gonna try something different next year. Like I, I, like I don't, I'm not scared of change. And this is one, uh, you know, it's, it's a part of my personality that is probably both strength and a, and a weakness because I'm one of these people get thrilled by let's try something. So the way that it works in, in schools is because people do have trouble with change. We all, in some ways we all have trouble with change. I gotta find the believers of certain pieces of that puzzle and they gotta find their people. And um, I was talking to Aisha Christensen, who's uh, one, of the, one of my friends on Twitter, and um, she does really great stuff with innovation. And we were talking about some things I'm working on with VR. And she said, you know what, what I always find that, you know, whenever I have some kind of thing new to do, you know, I try to find the kids who are interested and then we just form a group with them. And then we try to make some cool project and then other people get interested and it spreads this way. So it's kind of like these little pockets happening and allowing for various pockets to go on. So like, where does this fit into what we're doing? I get this often. So like, you know, I'm part of this HP Campus of the Future project, um, which I'm super excited about because what I'm taking is my values of um, supporting diversity and well-being, and I'm gonna to try to put it with this VR project. So I'm trying to create what that safe place looks like um, in a virtual setting. And the kids who I want to be part of that project to help test it, I want to use my stand kids. I want to use the kids who might have been marginalized. And when the kids who are marginalized gets the cool stuff, then other kids are going to want to put you a part of it. They're like, well, you know, my, the stand students, those who are really participating in stand, will be able to get this equipment and work, you know, with these people and learn these really cool things. And be like, I want to join stand too. <laughs> so like. How do you sell these, these innovations? I had a meeting today and we were talking about what this idea of purposeful play in a school. Are, are, if we believe in this, we're telling this, you know, we believe in play-based learning at our school. If we believe this is an approach for human fulfillment um, in our own lives, um, then we have to be willing to experiment and some of the things we're doing. And this messaging piece from, from the leader is very, very important. If you have a leader saying, no, we must stick by the book because we're worried about the grades and the map scores and blah, 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 then innovation is really hard to happen in a place like that. When, I, when you have someone like me is saying, that sounds really cool, let's do it. <laughs> what, do you want, what do you need from me? And, and I'm not forcing it on anyone. 
Mm -hmm. And sometimes, again, it's like this feeling of permission. Does, does an individual feel they have permission to try something out that is matching the values of what we're supporting? So if like they are, you know, want to try something out, you know, on white supremacy, I want to say no to that. <laughs> but if it's something that's supporting the values of the school, then I'm, I'm going to say yes. Most of the time, I'm going to say yes. We have a... Um, we have a woman, Erin Sherman at our school, who um, was taking this course at Harvard and she really kind of was been moved about like that we need to have courageous conversations around race. And she wrote to me and said, can I have a, can I run a book club? And can I send a note out to the whole staff? I'm like, yes, you can run a book club. And, you know, and she's, and I said, of how many books do you need? Just write people to say, anyone wants to do it, we'll buy them the book and let's get the books. And we are um, this Friday having our final session of, the, of this book. We haven't finished, it was way bigger than we, than we thought. Um, but she was empowered. I have, she's like 15 teachers are showing up at 7.45, 8 a.m. on Friday mornings. I can show support by being there as often as I can. Sometimes I can't. Um, and we're going to end the year with, you know, coffee and croissants that, you know, we're paying for as well for our last meeting together. So like, these are little things, but sometimes it's just saying, yeah, okay, let, let's do it. It's, it's this empowerment part. And there's a great quote from Toni Morrison who says that if you have, if you have power, um, then it's then it's your duty to to empower others. Like if you if you gain some power, and her full quote, and you can probably find it in the, for me, um, Tony Morrison's quote on power. And she talks about like this is not a grab um, candy game um, to the lives we're living. Like I have been given the incredible privilege to run a school. And I am haunted by the idea that I'm not doing enough and that what, what, what am I too afraid to do? What should I be doing more of? How do I need to get braver to do the right things for kids? And um, that's a journey. That's a journey for me as a leader. It's a journey for me as an individual, because like you said, there is pushback. Um, and pushback comes in very strange places. And some of it is just building the culture around it so you have support. Um, in most schools, there's a group, there's at least a small group of people who think exactly the same things we're talking about right now. Those who are listening to your podcast know exactly who those people are. But there's also people in your school that were, if given the opportunity, they would join that group too. And we've had some really surprising people join some of our equity groups that others would have thought, I, I wouldn't have thought they would have joined that group. And they're coming with such open hearts and saying, I don't know enough and I, I'm here to learn. And, and we say to each other, We're, we all are learning. And I started that equity group meeting this year and I said, let me start out that I'm a racist, I'm a homophobe, homophobe, I'm a misogynist, I'm an anti-Semite because I've learned self-hatred in all of these things. I've had the unconscious bias surround me on these things. I have marginalized myself throughout my own history. And that's the first place to say, hey, I am part of this horrible system that we have throughout this world where this is the truth that I've been taught this, to act unconsciously towards myself and towards others. And I have to first admit that to myself that I am still learning. I've made terrible mistakes maybe along the way. And the way I have to look at my own history is saying, and forgive myself too for some of that because I didn't, I didn't know myself well enough. I didn't, wasn't challenged on these points to recognize it. But now I, I can have these revelations and say, okay, understanding 
that I am part of the system and that um, the system has, has produced someone like me, what do I do, need to do now? How do I get out of this? How do I find a way? And so that I too can be my authentic self, that I can be a proud out leader, that I can be, I can talk about my Jewish past, that I can talk about the things I did that were not supportive of women, that I said I was not that, I wasn't that kind of woman. Um, I can be in a place and say, yeah, I went through this and now I'm gonna be braver. And, and that's I hope for those who are listening that you too can conf confront you know, the things that you've done to yourself first. And then we can start working on how to confront the things we're doing to each other. You know, and in my mind, that is, I know we talk about vulnerability all the time. I feel like that's just, you know, another word that we're seeing pop up um, in lots of different educational circles. But I, I think your example there really is just pure vulnerability. And it's why the name of the podcast is Be a Better Ally, because I think even if you identify, you know, as somebody who is queer, like you, I, I also, I, you know, I grew up, I continued to live in a very homophobic society. So yeah, I made jokes about gay people, you know, and, and had, you know, I would always joke about my own identity for a long time. And there's just a lot of unlearning there. And I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it does make others realize like it is a journey. And so I, I think that's probably why you have um, folks turning up to some of your equity groups saying like, I have a lot to learn. It's not an easy thing to say. And I think if you see others doing it, it does make it a little bit easier. Um, and, and everything that you have to say about, you know, bravery just really resonates. It's an important message to hear again and again and again. And I'm wondering, um, you know, we are a few weeks from summer holidays for some, for some folks. And I'm wondering if there's a resource that you would point listeners to in terms of anything, podcast, book, movie, just something that, you know, was instrumental in helping shape your philosophy or, or helping really inform your approach to becoming braver? Because it's one thing to say, I want to become braver. And it's a whole different thing, of course, um, doing the work to make it possible. So, as, you know, if folks are looking just for one resource that they might explore over the summer, um, do you have anything that you might recommend? I, I, I think... I mentioned this recently in a webinar too, like I'm really influenced by people like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde who experienced this inter intersectionality with it all. Um, to me, for, for whatever reason, I've, I've understood this, like the level of empathy that I, I, I witnessed through their stories um, helped transform myself. I always, to me, the way to learn to be brave is to read about other people being brave and, and understanding their process and their journey. Um, it, I spent a lot of years studying Holocaust literature because I taught 20th century history for a long, long time. And that was kind of my specialty from, from that time period. And when you read hundreds of memoirs of people um, finding the will to live and finding the will to move on. There's, also, there's, there's incredible learnings. I taught a university course on 20th century Eastern European history once only through memoirs. And it was the best course I ever taught. Um, and the students all came away and read simple stories of, of people's journeys. And I always tell people the greatest story to tell is the story of how you have failed and what you've learned. And this is this is the story we all connect with. Like, where where is your story? Where what, what have you what happened to you? What happened? And then for them to hear like, oh, then I learned this, and now I'm trying that. Like, this is this is if you're in a position of leadership or an educator listening, this is how you're going to connect to your students in the most significant way. They will be transformed by hearing your stories of your struggles and hearing the stories of others who've struggled and found a path out. 
that's uh, that's where I'd say, look, if you're looking for bravery, read those who've had to be brave. There's mm. amazing stories of of those people whose identities are closer to yours. Um, find them; they're there. Amazon search, <laughs> and <laughs> you're going to find your people. That's the wonderful thing about the internet. Find find your people and find find their history, and then find your then map and mine your own history and be ready to confront the messiness of what that is and then get ready to share that. And that's how we move forward. I love that. And, you know, I, I think it also taps on this idea of sometimes in schools, we talk a lot about research. We talk a lot about academic journals. Uh, and of course, you know, schools have professional learning libraries memoirs belong in that space. Um, and I, you know, I'm really glad that that's the example that you gave because in many ways it might be a more compelling quote unquote piece of literature to share with staff, um, than something from an academic journal. Storytelling is everything. All those who are in leadership, all those who are in teaching, this is, this is the entry point you know, you don't have to spend, you don't get up there and talk for 45 minutes. Sometimes it's a story that's 10 seconds long. And like, whoa, that just blew my mind that you, you just said that. And I've been blown away by people who've like come out and said things that were so incredibly painful, vulnerable. And, you know, I'm bursting out into tears hearing that one minute reflection um, this is how we transform each other's lives. And, and this is when people know that you're that safe person too. You tell the story about how you've struggled. Then they're like, okay, I'm struggling too. Maybe this is someone I can talk to. That's kind of a, a perfect note for us to end on. And, you know, thank you, of course, to you for sharing some of your stories on the podcast. Um, you know, I feel like I'm going to change the podcast to be the official Kathleen fan club. That'll be maybe uh, in the no, works. Please, honest. Here, here's. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't do that. Because one of the things of being a leader is you get isolated, and with any type of isolation where I'm put in some kind of higher or lower or whatever, then then you can't see me for who I am. It's just just like you. So I hope that people who who hear my voice know that they can tell their story as well. And people can always reach out to me with their story. And uh, I hope I'm a good listener to them. Listeners, I'm gonna include contact information for Kathleen. Um, you know, again- I, I know I, who the Twitter followers are out there. You, you, you <laughs> do. So thank you again so much for your time. Um, and I hope- Pleasure, you Trisha. And thank you for all the good work you're doing on behalf of LGBTQ kids around the world and, and helping show us the path of what we need to do better. Thank you again, Kathleen Nagley, for giving up some of your time. You've been such a supporter of the program, and I hope you know how much I appreciate that. Folks who are listening and are wondering, um, how might I encourage my school to do a little bit more in light of Pride Month, which is coming up, that's June. If you are looking um, for some inspiration for that, I have been working with Shifting Schools, and we are providing a free pathway that can be um, explored from anywhere, uh, by anyone. It's it's free for anybody who would like it. Uh, and it's meant to set us up to, of course, make sure that we are honoring Pride Month and that we are having conversations, that we're having reflective conversations with ourselves, with our friends, our family, and we're, that we're thinking about ways that we might f facilitate conversations with the classroom and beyond. Um, I'm really excited about this free learning pathway, and I'm also really humbled and honored that Justin Garcia the founder of hashtag queer edu chat is collaborating with us on that and that there is a special giveaway sponsored by pride and less prejudice so if you're interested in learning more about that free professional development pathway for pride month you can learn all about it if you subscribe to the free newsletter from shifting schools you can find out more about that via shifting schools Dot com the subscription to their newsletter uh, that's right there at the top of the page i hope you join us um, and i hope that helps you celebrate and honor pride 2021 thanks again for listening take care <laughs>